Father, we do thank you again so much for your love for us, your great protection of us, your care and your mercy. And Lord, that uh, you uh, reveal uh, and revealed that love in having sent your son to die for our sins. And we thank you. We thank you that through your son, Jesus, uh, we have the forgiveness of sins and now our relationship with you. And I thank you that you use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray that you would do just that today. That you would take your word and, and make us more like Jesus, your son. That you would use it for your glory this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are living in a society and even an area where there are lots of churches and uh, supposedly the northwest is the most unchurched area but there's a lot of churches out there there's a lot of churches uh you look up in uh, you know on the internet search for this area there's a lot now i see in many of these churches uh the motto for these churches usually is is such uh the great commandment and the great commission they say that this is what we're about we're about uh loving the lord god with all our heart and loving our neighbor as self, and then going into the world. That's what they say. Now, uh, with that philosophy, what does that mean? What does it mean when a church says they're about the great commandment? Uh, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? When you, see, when you speak of that, now, the Jews of Jesus' day, uh, they understood and uh, that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and soul. And in fact, uh, they repeated that truth twice a day. So we have a parallelism. The Jews back in that day, they understood on a daily basis their focus should be loving the Lord God with all their heart. And churches around here, their focus is supposed to be loving the Lord God with all their heart, mind, and soul. So with that in mind, what does it mean? What is this greatest commandment that uh, we hear of and we see in the Word of God? Well, today we're going to finish our little mini-series in Matthew as we move towards a new book. And so, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? And we're going to be looking at verses 34 to 38. And as you're turning there, just a reminder, we did share through the whole book of Matthew back in uh, 2009, I think it was, or a little 11 or somewhere a while back. So you can always go back and listen to the whole book all the way through. It's there on the website And so as we hit little pieces of that in a reminder, uh, just another reminder that you could listen to that also. Now, in the book of Matthew, this book is about King Jesus, and the king has been introduced. Jesus is the Christ. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the Jews. And we see here that he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we see that having the way prepared by John, uh, a repentance, a baptism of repentance, we see that Jesus came onto the scene and he came to his own, those who were sitting in spiritual darkness, and he called upon them to repent and believe in the truth concerning himself, the king who was in their midst. The kingdom of God was right in their midst, and that they needed to enter through him alone by the, in the context of faith, where he would say, believe, believe in me. Now, uh, Matthew has affirmed Jesus' personhood as the Lord God through revealing the miraculous that he did, which was also affirmed by his teaching. His teaching revealed that he was God in human flesh and that he was had authority to share those things. He had authority to share those things. And so here we have the Lord Jesus teaching and sharing the word of God And uh, for about two and a half years, the Jews have come to a point where they have closed their eyes and plugged their ears, where they're no longer uh, listening to what the Lord Jesus has to say. They just desire to get the miracles and the stuff from him. And so the Lord God has begun to speak in parables to hide the truth from those who have hardened their hearts towards him and has begun to share his truth with his disciples and reveal the what he was intending, instructing them. And within that, he made it clear that he was on the way to the cross and that he would have to suffer at the hands of the, of the rulers and, and uh, 
be put on a cross and die and rise from the dead on the third day. And so we see the Lord Jesus clearly having shared these truths. And now three years have passed, and we come to a point in our passage where it's the last week of Jesus' life on earth before the crucifixion. And it's a turning point in the book of Matthew, as we're going to see, and it's extremely important. It's what everything has been uh, leading up to. Indeed, in the book of Matthew, eight out of the 28 chapters uh, are devoted to his final week on earth. And in effect, a third of all the gospel material from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is devoted to the final week of his life here on earth. Now, with this in mind, in the last week of his life on earth, uh, he has, uh, Matthew has revealed really his uh, not-so-triumphal entry. Now, what do I mean by that? We call it the triumphal entry because he came into Jerusalem and everyone's saying, Hosanna, and, and blessed be the Lord, and they're all, they're all praising him. But they were praising him because they thought he was going to deliver them from the Romans rather than from their sin. And we see as the crowds cheered in Luke 19, Jesus was weeping over their rejection of him, as we see. In the same crowds later that week who were cheering him on would be saying, crucify him. We see Jesus uh, cursing the fig tree, uh, symbolically cursing Israel for their outwardly beautiful appearance spiritually, but yet they had no fruit at all. No fruit at all. And then Jesus went in again and cleansed the temple again. And the wicked religious leaders, they had made it a robber's den and a house of, and a, rather than a house of prayer for all the nations. And so in this final week, Jesus is teaching and preaching uh, in, in the temple. He's also receiving worship. And the crowd is hanging on every word at that point. And on Tuesday of this week, Israel's religious leaders gather up enough guts to confront Jesus concerning what authority he has to do the things he is doing in the temple area, the things he's doing and saying. And the Lord Jesus uh, clearly understood their hypocritical wickedness and turned uh, the question back to them about John, which they couldn't answer. The reality is they were trying to trick him. And so then at that point, he shares three parables specifically uh, about the religious leaders, which revealed that God was about to take the kingdom away from the religious leaders and ultimately Israel because of their rejection of Christ. And he would temporarily move that to the Gentiles, bringing salvation to all. And so after giving those condemning parables, the Jews, the leaders knew that they were about them, as we'll see in a little bit. He begins, they begin to step up their efforts to try and trip up Jesus so that they can have a reason to deliver him over to the Romans for crucifixion. And so they try to uh, ask questions to discredit him or to cause him to say something that would validate them handing him over for being uh, crucified. And so there were the questions from the Pharisees concerning paying tax to Caesar and another from the Sadducees concerning resurrection and it's at this, at, at this point, after Jesus has stumped the hypocrites with his perfect answers, we come to the third and final question uh, that is given to him, uh, because after this one, no one dared to ask any more questions. And so we come to our passage, again, Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 34. And I'm going to read past our portion in this, but we'll, we'll read through what we're going to teach on. Uh, verse, uh, let's go back to the 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as himself, as, as yourself. On these two commands depend the whole law and prophets. So then first of all, we see Jesus is asked a question about what is the greatest commandment. And, and notice the occasion for this question. Verse 33 and when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, what's he talking about here? Uh, remember, this occurs in the temple area that Jesus has cleansed. 
he has also been addressing the religious leaders who are trying to trap him so that they might deliver him to the Romans. And remember, clearly, these religious leaders understood that those three parables of condemnation were about them. Look back in chapter 21, verse 45. Just back a little bit. 21:45. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, that's the three that he spoke of them this last week of his life, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So they got to figure out a different way to get him. So they're going to try to trip him up with trick questions, as we see. And so the religious leaders are trying to trip him up so that they can seize him. And then notice back in our passage, chapter 22, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they had they gathered themselves together. This is the context of what's going on. So the point in, in verse 34 at this point, the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, you know, they're, they're gathering together, um, trying to figure out another way to get uh, rid of Jesus. And notice we have this verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Now, if I had just the book of Matthew, I might gain a wrong perspective of this question in light of the questions that were spoken before. The questions before were clearly designed to trip up Jesus. They knew what they were doing. They're being deceitful. They're trying to get the crowds to turn on him so that the Romans could come in to take him to crucify him. Now, if I don't understand the context, I might think that's the same thing in this third question. But the Gospel of Mark helps us out here, actually helps us out. Look at Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and, and we'll look at that a little bit as we look at Matthew 22. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. I think we gain a different perspective on this last question. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Okay, we're going to see that's the Pharisees. They're trying to figure out how they're going to get Jesus. They're, they're trying to figure it out because he stumped the Sadducees. He stumped them. How are we going to get him? How are we going to get him? And recognizing he, that he, that's Jesus, the, the, this, this, this uh, scribe, recognizing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him what commandment is the foremost of all. So here in the book of Mark, it appears that this lawyer or scribe is trying to, is not trying to test Jesus to trip him up. He is testing him to see if he's really who he is. He's actually got some interest in here because he realized he had answered them well. Lord Jesus had answered these very He wasn't trying to, to do a trick on him. He was testing him to see, hey, what is really going on here? So that's what we see here. So, uh, and he asks him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And so here he is testing him, but not in the sense that he is trying to test to trip up uh, to get him uh, arrested. So you got the Pharisees arguing, of course, and this person who's called a lawyer or a scribe, evidently one of them, recognizes that Jesus has answered them well, and it's from here we have the question. Now, the scribes were the experts in the law. They were the experts. Uh, they were those uh, who, along with the Pharisees, uh, seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They, they were the experts. They were the official interpreters of God's word uh, for Israel. They were the experts. And so this scribe here, who is a lawyer, a lawyer, we see, was that scribe? or lawyer here, we see, uh, is interested because Jesus had answered them well. He had answered them well. And so, yes, he's testing him, but I believe it's not in the way that the Pharisees had before. So back to our passage. Look at verse uh, 36, 20, chapter 22 of Matthew. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? So he's asking him concerning the law. That would be the law of Moses. Now, certainly the law of Moses in its broadest sense spoke of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And specifically, when we look at the law of Moses, we break that down into three basic elements. 
First we have the moral law, that's God's moral standards, which they should have realized they couldn't keep and they needed a Savior to help them. And then we have the civil law, which were the regulations concerning the nation of Israel that he had established. And then we had the ceremonial law, those provisions and regulations for the temple, feast, and sacrifices, which would point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, who would bear our sins in his body on the cross. Now, the religious leaders of the day at this time, they had taken all the stuff in the Old Testament and they had quantified it and and organized it to the point where they had 613 specific commands, 248 were positive, 365 were negative. They had all kinds of commands. So this lawyer, out of all these commands, which is the greatest? Which is the greatest out of all these commands? And so we could speculate on the reason why the scribe asked the question, but it's really not clear, apart from the fact that he was interested because Jesus had answered well, the Pharisees. So with that in mind, notice in Jesus' wonderful answer, we gain a, a picture of the nature of a true relationship with the living God. Back in verse 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together And uh, one of them, a lawyer, uh, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, um, in Mark chapter 12, we have a little more information about Jesus' answer. Turn there also, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. This is parallel... Um, passage here speaking of the same event and one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he that's speaking of Jesus had answered them well and asked him that's speaking of asking Jesus what commandment is the foremost of all Jesus answered the foremost is hero Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength Notice how he answers him here. We have more information in the book of Mark. We have more information in the book of Mark. He answers him here with what's called the the Shema. The the term in Hebrew, Shema, means to hear. And the term means to listen or hear with the intent of obeying. It's like when we ask our children to listen to what mommy's saying. We're not saying just listen to it. We're saying do what we're saying, right? Right? And this Shema is what is called the Great Shema, the Great Shema. It's the Great Sham these days in many churches and also with Israel, but the Great Shema here where the Lord Jesus shares this uh, portion from the book of Deuteronomy. From the book of Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy. Well, actually, uh, uh, yeah, turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it was read for us earlier. Deuteronomy 6, and look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is our God, the Lord, excuse me, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. He's one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you shall teach... And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk about them when you walk. When, excuse me, when you sit, when you, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them on as bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be. As frontals on your forehead, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So then, he answers with the Shema. The Lord is one, and you need to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? Now, in that day, he, they, were, they, they put these things on their, 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 their hats and on their sides, and they were like little Bible verses, basically. And it had the Shema. They were called phylacteries. And they had the Bible verse on it. And that's what he's talking about, to be a reminder as a sign, not something uh, to do to be righteous, but a sign, right? 
And that's the exact same thing that Jesus was calling the hypocritical Pharisees about because they had broadened their phylacteries. They had taken these little verses and made them real big so people could see how spiritual they were. And he called them on their hypocrisy. Because the point of having that was to be a sign, to remember what God said, not to be looking spiritual, okay? And so these uh, things were worn by those, uh, those Jews. And so the Shema, from the Jewish perspective, consisted of Deuteronomy, which I mentioned there, uh, chapter 6, 4 through 9, then chapter 11, 13 through 21, and Numbers, chapter, 37, chapter 16, verses 37 to 41. And so this great Shema, which is what we just read, they would recite two times a day. Every Jew would recite this. You should love the Lord. The Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. They would recite it twice a day. They recite it twice a day. And so with that, they had quite a bit of familiarity or extreme familiarity with the Scripture, like the churches of these days do, by the way. They have an extreme familiarity with it. But familiarity does not substitute for a true relationship with the living God. And that's what we're going to see here. So Jesus answers the question to which is the greatest commandment out of all those 613. He says to them, verse 37, Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's the answer. So with that in mind, uh, let's make some observations about this commandment as we look at it. And the first and most obvious observation is it's a command. It's not a suggestion. But the context was with with a nation that had a relationship supposedly with the Lord. A relationship in which they had been redeemed as pictured by their physical redemption from Egypt. They were those who should have turned to the Lord with all their heart and been changed. They should have looked at the law and said, I can't do that. I need a savior. And that's what the sacrifices pointed to. And yet they didn't. They said, hey, we can do it. And up to that point, they were saying it off, repeating it twice a day. This is what I'm saying. This is what's the best thing. And so here, uh, we realize it's a command. But it was to be a command to those who would realize if they weren't saved, they can't do it. To those who are saved, that only in him can we do it if we understand and have a right relationship with him. So here, let's make some uh, observations. So first of all, it's a command, obviously. But notice, and, and this is how we can understand how to do this as believers. Notice it is also personal. It's personal. Even though it's a corporate thing to Israel, and back then, and Jesus shares it here in, the, in Matthew, it was personal. You, and that's actually you singular, you shall love the Lord your God. Not you all, but you. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Singular. It's personal. It's personal. Now the term Lord here in the Greek is, comes from the word kurios. And it speaks of one in authority. It could be translated Lord or Master. And it was used as a term of honor for those in authority. And it also had a Greek counterpart, or excuse me, its Greek counterpart in Hebrew was Yahweh, which is translated Lord. Now, in a littler sense, there was Adonai, which is translated Lord or Master. You'll see in your Old Testaments that if you have large L-O-R-D with small O-R-D, I'll do it this way, O-R-D, that speaks of Adonai, like Master. But if you have L-O-R-D in large caps in your Old Testament, that's speaking of Yahweh. And you go, what's Yahweh? I thought there was Jehovah. Well, that was mistransliterated. They added vowel points to make it Jehovah. If you want to call it Jehovah, that's fine. But it literally is Yahweh, and it's the verb, first person, to be. And it means I am. That's what it means. In Exodus chapter 3, the, uh, Moses is asking you know, the God, well, what should I tell the Israelites your name is? And he says, Yahweh et Yahweh, I am who I am. I am who I am. It speaks of self-existence. It speaks of God. It speaks of God. 
So you should love the Lord, the self-existent one, the one who is, who is, who is in need of nothing but is the creator of all. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So notice here we have this command, and it's personal. You should love him. You should love him. Love the I am. Love the Lord your God. There's an assumption, as we'll see, that there's a relationship already. He's not saying you should love that God over there. You should love the God that you don't really care about. You should love the Lord your God. Your God. And so Jesus affirms here that this is the greatest commandment, and it was specifically at that time to a covenant people, the Jews. They had made a, they had agreed on a relationship with the living God at Sinai. They were his people in name, and some were a remnant by faith, by the way. And so here's the command. But notice, it is also not only personal, your God, you shall love, you personally, it is also relational, again. You shall love the Lord your God, your God. Now, the reality is the Jews entered into a covenant agreement. And the word covenant means agreement. It can be a two-sided agreement. One side says yes, the other side says yes. Or it can be a one-sided agreement where God just says something and is going to do it. This was a two-sided agreement where they accepted the relationship that they had with the Lord that he had brought forth in his word And they said, we'll do it. We'll do everything you say. We'll obey. You can read that in in Exodus. But the reality is, as I've mentioned before, they should have realized, I can't do this. I can't live up to these standards. I deserve the punishment of failing in these things. And they should have understood that they're sinful and that they needed a Savior that would then the sacrifices, which would point to the Lord Jesus, the seed of Abraham who would die for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see even in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, the, the, the command to turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Turn to him. For this commandment's not too far. It's not away from you. That's the one Jews you can do. That's the one we can do, which is turning to the Lord for forgiveness of sins. That's what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 10. And he said it was the word of faith which they were preaching, Deuteronomy 30, 10 and 11. So when we turn to God for the forgiveness of sins through the provision of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, we believe we're saved and we become his people. Now the Jews were his people by an agreement, but some were really not his people, which he would show later on that they weren't after they rejected him. But there was a remnant within that that had come to faith. And for us, those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have become his people. We were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. So it's relational. This command is not for those who have not entered into a relationship with the living God. And if you think you have, and you try to do this apart from him, you're going to realize pretty quickly you can't do it unless you, think, unless you become a self-righteous hypocrite like many of the, the Pharisees. Now, what does it mean to love the Lord your God? What does that mean, to love the Lord your God? Well, let's take a look at what biblical love is. And I think sometimes we get confused because we look at the manifestation and we say that's love. Well, no, that's not love. That's just the manifestation of it. Love is even more than that. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The word used in our passage, you shall love, and translated in Greek here, is agape. And it speaks of an action in a sense, a self-sacrifice, seeking the other's best. But ultimately, that's just the manifestation of love. There's actually a real love behind that. You see, God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us, and the demonstration of that was giving his very son for us. So a real love will be manifest in that self-sacrifice. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Turn to John chapter 15. So the Lord Jesus will say, hey, this is love that you do this. But he's saying this is the manifestation of it. So some people get confused. They go, okay, this is love. I'm going to go do this then. No, it comes from a changed heart that actually sees our Savior differently and responds differently. Think about it. When you're in a love relationship, you do things for them that you love because of that love. You want the best for them because you love them. Because you love them. 
So he says here in John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one day lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Hey, that's the manifestation of real love. If you love someone more than you love yourself, if they're in danger, you're going to lay your life down for them. If you have a real love for them, a real love for them. What about uh, 1 John chapter 3? 1 John 3, you can turn there, right near Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 16 to 17. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's how I can spot it. I can spot that that person loves me by the action that they brought forth. I can spot that Jesus loves me because he laid down his life for me. That's what he says here. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Look up a little farther in 1 John 4. And John is all about this, by the way. It's about love for the brethren, but it's a manifestation of love for God, by the way. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Hey, if you love your brothers and sisters, that means you have a real relationship with the one who loved you first. And he says here, By this, love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now again, love is not simply the action. We make a mistake. Okay, love is is an action. Love is... The action is the manifestation of a genuine love for that person. And here, speaking of the Lord and the Lord loving us. You know, the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And that he died for all, that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, it's not simply, as we'll see in a moment, obedience is love. Yes, Jesus is going to say, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. But if you love, have a real love for him, you're going to be motivated then to do what he wants you to do out of a real love for him. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Gepsi, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's a way to memorize where things are. Memorize a group of books, and then when you hear it, you go, oh, it's in that group, and I can run through that group and find it within that. Ephesians chapter, actually it's chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse uh, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Set that stuff aside. He says, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God, and as beloved children, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You see, when Jesus died for us, he demonstrated love. He didn't stop loving us. That's just the manifestation of it. He still loves us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. That was just a proof by his actions of his love for us. So we're going to see. So then, you shall love the Lord your God. And the only way to love the Lord your God is to have a relationship with God. There's no other way. Because we can't do it. Because we are self-lovers apart from, apart from the Lord Jesus Before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we loved me. Not you loved me, I loved me. We loved ourselves, and we loved those who could benefit us. We loved ourselves. But when we heard of the love of God and the truth of what he did for us, dying for our sins and and rising from the dead, he changed our hearts when we believed in him. 
and we now can see him. And by the way, if you're wondering, how can I love the Lord my God, and we'll talk about this later, you need to get to know him. When you start to see from the Word of God who he really is and what he's done, that changes your heart in, in, in a love for him. You can say, I'll love God, I'll do this stuff. No, 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 you need to know who he is and respond to that truth. And if you love him, and then that will cause you to love him. So, back in our passage, you shall love the Lord your God. What does it look like? What does loving the Lord look like? How does that manifest? I, I, we, it's hard to define love for someone apart from the demonstration of it, right? You know, what, is, what does love for someone look like? Uh, there's, a, there's a manifestation of it, but that's, the manifestation is not love itself. It's a manifestation of that love for that person. And what does that look like? Well, is loving God coming here and just simply singing songs, feeling good about it? I love you, Lord. I love. Is that is that loving God? Well, that may be a manifestation of it if we truly do love Him. Absolutely, but it could just be words. As we're going to see, a genuine love for the living God reveals itself or manifests itself in placing Him personally and His interests personally above our interests and our own desires. If you love someone, again, you consider them very important. And you consider their desire extremely important. And that's love. It's looking out for their best interest. Dying for them. This is love. That you would die for them in that sense. You see? And that's what the Lord Jesus did for us. Now, biblical love, the demonstration of it, cannot be separated from actually obeying the Lord. Because he is God, and if we love God, and God has said this is what he wants for us, which is the best for us, and the best for each other, if I don't obey that, then I don't really love him. You see? So look at John 14, where we see uh, what biblical love looks like, what Jesus says it looks like. It's not saying that that is love, all-encompassing. It's what it looks like. It's what it looks like. John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments... Now, the, the, the term in the New Testament, commandments, is not the term law like the Ten Commandments. It's simply the word ontily, which means commands. He who has my commands. And you remember, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, when he was uh, on his way to, to, to ascend before that, when he spoke to his disciples, he said that uh, they should teach um, them to, 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 to do all that he has said, to obey all that he has said. So in John 14, 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's obeys, he it is who loves me. Jesus says, hey, you want to see real love for me? This is real love. Now, he's not talking about a self-righteous, hypocritical uh, love like the Pharisees supposedly had, where they repeated each day, twice a day, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and they went out and did everything externally, but the inside was dirty and rotten. He's not talking about that. He says, he it is who loves me, John 14, 21. Uh, he, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, not the bag, I said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You know, just on a side note, that's why when people tell me, I look at some churches that are so bad where the pastors are starving the sheep, and people say, well, he loves Jesus. I go, well, not from Jesus' definition. You see? Turn to First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. You see, if we really love him, we're not going to lean on our own understanding. We're not going to do our own thing. When we do, we're going to feel guilty over it we're going to confess it because we all fail we're not we don't love him perfectly we know that but we're going to manifest an obedience to him first john 2 3 through 6 this is the test 
And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, his commands. That's what he's saying. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, the example of pastors who don't preach the word. God says, preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction. People who don't do that, Jesus says here through his word. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. There's a real love relationship. And so as we get to know our Savior, we see him in the word of God. We see what he's done for us and always never forget the cross. We see how much he loves us, how much he cares for us. All throughout the word, it's all about him. He begins to change our heart towards him. He begins to change our heart. And initially we realize he saved us. We have a love for him for that. But we see him so much more as we look in the word of God. And yes, we fail. We don't love the Lord our God all the time. We fail. But believers will confess their sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back in 1 John, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one he says, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Hey, people say, I trust Jesus. I abide in him. I'm his. And they don't obey him. Then there's something not right there. There's something not right. John goes to so far to say that they're a liar. Maybe that's you. Maybe you say, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And you don't obey him. There's clear disobedience and you're unwilling to address it. It's one thing to have things in our life that God reveals and you go, oh man. Uh. You know, it's another thing to have him reveal it and then reject that and keep going in the way that we went before. It's quite different. So then we see the same principle in 1 John chapter 5. Again, 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that's his people, when we love God and observe his, I like to say, commands. The Lord Jesus says we're to forgive one another out of love because he's forgiven me so much, I forgive. He's changed my heart. Lord Jesus says, set aside anger. Out of love, I realize that's evil and, and it was against him and it's against others. And I, and I set it aside or when I fail, I confess it. Because I have a real relationship with him. And that's loving the Lord. So then, when you truly know the living God, when you're in a relationship with him, his love has been poured out in your heart by his spirit, Romans 5. You truly know him. You will be enabled by the Holy Spirit because he changes our heart, helps us understand things rightly, gives us a new heart, a heart of love. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. It's not a burden to do what he wants us to do if you have a relationship with him and you're abiding in him. Now, yes, we may have conflict, our old nature and our new nature. We may have temptation. But the command is not a burden when we abide in Jesus. So then the greatest command is to love the Lord your God. Are you doing that? And we're going to see in a moment the whole law, everything in the Old Testament is summed up in loving him and really genuinely loving his people. It's all summed up there. If you're honest with yourself today, some of you might say, hey, I do not love God and I haven't. Now, we all go into spits and spats of, of failing. We all know that. But uh, maybe you've never truly loved the Lord because you don't know him. You don't know him because your sin's in the way. Look at your actions. Are you with a right heart desiring to obey his word? We fail, but are you desiring to obey when he says something, you don't argue with it, I'm going to argue with this. No, uh, yeah, that's what he says. Do you have the right heart? Who is it that you really love? And then for some of us believers, maybe we've uh, left or kind of departed our first love a little bit. We've, we've lost sight of how good he is and how kind he is and how, how much his thoughts towards us 
every day how much his love for us is is there we've lost sight of that because we've we've got our eyes off of jesus you need to confess and god will change your heart sin gets in the way when we sin we become slaves to sin and we get hardened confess it right away you'll be forgiven right away your relationship restored and if it isn't then you're not confessing all your sin by the way so then we have this uh tremendous commandment but notice it is all-encompassing back in our passage uh matthew 22 37 and he said to him you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind he's speaking of uh, the totality or the entirety of of these things your heart, uh, your, your, your soul and your mind, your whole heart, holos is the word in Greek, everything. Now, you may notice there's some difference between Mark, Deuteronomy, and this passage in the terms mind, might, and strength versus uh, soul. We see that. So is the Lord Jesus saying you shall love the Lord your God and with all this and all this and all this, or is he saying something synonymously? These three things really speak of one thing. Of one thing. Is he saying we're to love the Lord God with three different things, or is he saying with the same thing in three different manifestations or three different pictures? I think they're synonymous terms. I think the Word of God reveals that. Notice he says your heart, your soul, and your mind. The, the term lev here, heart, uh, cardia, or in the Old Testament, heart, heart, New Testament, cardia, spoke of the inner man. It's the source and, and seed of the functions of one's emotional, volitional, and rational life. The term heart in Scripture is used synonymously with minds and will, by the way. Let me share some passages for that. Psalm 7, verse 9 and 10. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Amen, right? And, but establish the righteous. For the, for the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Revelation 23, the Lord Jesus says, I am the one who searches the minds and hearts to give to each one according to their deeds. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your, let your, um, requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Those words are used, now they're used uh, in parallel, but they're also used in, 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 to say the same thing. Second Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were hardened. And then later on he says in 3.15, Moses read, a veil covered their heart. Minds and hearts, same thing. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days I will put my law on their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. Same, same thing. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. Hearts and minds, the same thing. It's the inner man. It's the inner man. Ephesians chapter 4, I don't have time to read this, but it talks about the mind, the understanding, ignorance of heart, all those things. Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. That's who you are. What you think is who you are. That's you. That's you. And God, throughout his word, describes people based on their heart condition. God speaks of a change of heart, the sad of heart, the glad of heart, the slow of heart to believe, uncircumcised hearts, hardness of heart, sincerity of heart, pride and arrogance of the heart, idols of the heart. Unbelievers are seen as having hearts of stone. The redeemed are given new hearts, hearts of flesh. So then the heart of man and his thinking represents the inner man as he thinks, so he is. This is in contrast to those who have defiled hearts. Let me share something from Mark chapter 7. Mark, let's turn there. Mark chapter 7, verse 18. And he said to them, Are you so lacking understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into man from the outside cannot defile him? He's saying food can't defile you. He's just saying, don't you realize that? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he was saying that which proceeds out of man is that which defiles the man. From within, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile a man. That's out of the heart. It's out of your thinking. It's who you are. And so then we see the reality is the Lord is just speaking of who you are on the inside. You should love the Lord God with your entire being. The entire being. It's, it's your thinking. It's your thought process. It's your, it's your heart. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your mind. Completely and wholeheartedly. So what's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with your entire being. And that doesn't happen unless we see who he is and we recognize his love for us. And then we can respond because we love because he first loved us. We can respond in love for him and for his people. But God doesn't take too well to those who claim to know him and are double-minded, by the way. He doesn't uh, share that very well. He talks about in uh, James chapter 1 that those who are double-minded are unstable in all their ways. Double-minded means you've got two different things going on in your head. Claiming to follow Jesus, but you've got another set of thoughts that aren't following him at all. What does uh, David share to Solomon in First Chronicles 28? He says, So now in the sight of all Israel, in the assembly of the Lord, in the hangering of, the, of our God, Observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God in order that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know that the God of your father, know the God of your father, know him, have a relationship, the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and willing mind. A whole heart just takes what he says and is desiring to do it. Recognizes we can't, we have to trust him. Is, is convicted when we fail. A whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and he understands the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Samuel in his farewell address says something very similar. Samuel said to the people, First Samuel 12, 20, uh, Do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. He says later on, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. It's really great. It's First Samuel 12. So look at your life. Are you loving the Lord, serving him with a whole heart, or is it divided? We should be serving him by and large with a whole heart. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, Jesus says. Again, I think of those churches that say they have the great commandment as their primary thing in the Great Commission, and yet they don't preach and teach the Word of God faithfully. They don't obey the Lord in addressing sin for the good of the flock. They don't seek after those who are straying. Can they be loving Him? The Lord's Word says differently. So what do we do, believers, if we realize we have a divided heart? We, we, we are His. We're saved but my heart is divided because we're tempted every day to have a divided heart. What do we do? James is really clear. James chapter 4. Let's turn there. The ladies have finished that up. We're almost done with James. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're willing to admit you're wrong, you've got a divided heart, your heart's not right, which we've got to do a lot. I've got to do it a lot, I'll tell you that. He gives grace, his favor. He's so gracious. Boy, we fail, and he's so gracious if we just admit it, and we're just honest with him, and we truly desire not to do that. He says he gives grace, greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. I need to submit to his will rather than mine. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Get in his word and draw near to him in prayer. 
He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and your purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You humble yourself by admitting you're wrong, and it's sin. And it should have a change in your heart. And he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. And then renew your mind with his truth so that you're not double-minded. Catch those thoughts. Do the battle in your head. The battle's in your head. Those thoughts come in. They're not in line with what he says. They're in line with what I want. No. This is what God says. Lord God, help me walk rightly. And he will. And he will. You know, over the years, I've talked to many people who've been going through difficulties and saying they want to follow the Lord, and yet so often they haven't humbled themselves and acknowledged just the simplicity of their sin, that they're just, it's just in the way. They're practicing self-love in the context of disobedience, and all we've got to do is just admit it, and then he'll enable us from a changed heart to love him and keep his word. So as we finish up, notice... He explains about this command. He says, back in our passage, Matthew 22, he says in verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. It is the great megas. It is the largest, the greatest. Protone, it is the primary one. This is the greatest ontoly command to love the Lord God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind, with your entire being. It has to come from the inside or it's hypocrisy like the Pharisees. They had their little dangling verses that said, love the Lord God. They said it twice a day and they were hypocrites because their hearts were full of sin. But it shouldn't be for us, right? It shouldn't be for us. So then we need to examine our hearts. And again, let me finish up with this. How do we learn to love the Lord? You've got to get to know him. And it's wonderful because the first thing we learn about him as believers is that he loved us enough to die for our sins. And that's enough to be going, wow, thank you, Lord God. You are wonderful. You are great. You are kind. Let me finish up with one passage. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Because as I mentioned before, God's love is demonstrated in dying for us. That's the supreme example. But his love wasn't just at that time. He loves us now. And we've got to see him rightly. He loves us so much. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the real person. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that's us together, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up with all to all the fullness of God. When we focus on him and his mighty deeds and who he is, we get to know him better, and we're going to want to respond by obeying him. That's real love, seeing his interests above ours, whether it's at home, whether it's at church, whether it's out and about. It's when we are effectively not walking with him our love kind of goes out the window. But when we walk with him, we see him as he is. It's going to manifest in a desire to obey and then trusting him by faith to help us to do that. To do that. So then, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much, and we recognize we can't do that at all unless you change us. And when you saved us, Lord God, you did change us. You gave us your spirit and the ability to understand your word and to see and relate to you and to understand who you are. Lord, help us to see you rightly, that we would love you more and more. 
And Lord, that that love would certainly be manifest, as you've said, in, in obedience to your word. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is self-deceived, maybe like the Pharisees who would say they loved the Lord their God with all their heart twice a day, and yet had hardened hearts. I pray that you would soften the heart, that they might see themselves rightly and see your great love that you poured out in Jesus. They might believe. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray for anyone who has allowed their love, in a sense, to grow cold for you. Lord, reveal the sin that is in the way that they might simply confess, be forgiven, and see you rightly and then love you because you first loved us. Lord, thank you for your word. Remind us of these things day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen.